As we've done in previous weeks during Lent, um, I invite you to turn to number 144 in the blue hymnal. Um, and then just leave your hymnal open at that place um, for our Kyrie following the sermon. I'll also say that um, we're going to leave some space for silence between the ending of the sermon and the Kyrie. Um, so just so you know that that's intentional and that you're invited uh, into a time of prayer in that silence. Well, I want to begin by stating the obvious, and that is that I'm coming to this gospel story as a middle-aged man. Um, consider the whiskers a visual cue. Um, while I always and inevitably approach the scripture from that vantage point, sometimes I'm more conscious of it than others. And working with and thinking about this story from John has raised that consciousness uh, to the surface. So here at the beginning, I'd just like to own my bias and also call upon my sisters uh, to offer your readings of this story, whether they're in harmony with my own or a counterpoint um, during our sharing time or perhaps over the listserv sometime this week. Um, not necessarily to prove me right or wrong, but as an act of solidarity with the woman whose prophetic act we observed this morning and in an attempt to make sure that we hear this story described in a woman's voice. To be honest, I was aware all week long of some discomfort with this scene from John's Gospel. So let me share a bit of that with you in hopes that it will cast a certain light on the scene itself, but I hope also draw us more deeply into conversation with it. Initially, my discomfort was with this image of Mary on her knees and at the feet of Jesus. Her subservience made me uncomfortable for some very modern reasons having little to do with how John's first audience would have read the story. This image of a woman on her knees in front of a man seems to play too easily into men's tendency, particularly in the church, to see this posture as not only normal but recommended for women. Our own local history feeds into my discomfort, causing me to want to back away from any suggestion that women are at their best when they're serving men. Any suggestion that submission is the peculiar fate of women and one ordained by the scriptures. My initial discomfort then was with how this story serves or has been called upon to serve to freeze that servant posture into law. But as real as I think my discomfort is regarding its potential for this patriarchal reading, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that while it does have a part in my discomfort, it's not at the root of it. So if not that, then what was at the bottom of my discomfort? Perhaps it was the potential for sexualizing this text, for reading the story of the anointing sexually, Maybe that's what made me uncomfortable. In fact, this story is often read through that particular lens so that the scandal at the heart of the story is this image of Mary embracing Jesus' naked feet, anointing them with perfume and wiping them with her hair. And the worship materials in our denomination's leader magazine even hint at that, uh, asking the preacher to consider how the congregation would feel if a woman were to come walking up onto the platform mid-sermon and were to remove my shoes and do what Mary did to Jesus or having a man come forward and offering that same act of service to Pastor Sue. How scandalous, how strange. A man touching the feet of a woman, a woman touching the feet of a man. How can that be anything other than sexual? And yet this too feels like a reading of the story through a contemporary lens. You don't need to tell me that we inhabit a hypersexualized culture 
On the one hand, sex is used to market everything under the sun. Women are objectified. Men are treated like slavering predators, and all for the sake of selling a car or some shampoo. And truth be told, that objectification and degradation do sell product. And a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy we see right through the ruse, but then go ahead and buy stuff anyways. On the other hand, are those of us who are disgusted by such manipulation, and even more so by the techniques used. Objectification of women, degradation of men are not simply distasteful, we see them as dangerous and fraught with negative consequences for the lives of individual women and men, girls and boys, and also for the culture as a whole. We reject those things utterly, or at least try to. And perhaps because of them, we can grow suspicious of anything that seems even remotely sexual. We grow increasingly uncomfortable around situations which we fear might carry sexual connotations. We're hyper-aware about how and when and whom we touch. We find it difficult to talk about sexuality, finding that when we do try, our normal demeanor has somehow been mysteriously replaced by an awkward self-consciousness that makes that conversation wearisome, if not impossible. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, yes, this is indeed a factor in my discomfort about this story from John's Gospel. Not so much that I see anything at all sexual in the story. I take my cue from the other players, none of whom seem preoccupied by such worries. In Luke's version of the story, the reputation of the unnamed woman is presented as the reason Simon the Pharisee was scandalized by her behavior. But in John's telling, the only objection that's raised, in fact, is by Judas, and he's only upset about the poor stewardship. My discomfort has nothing to do with my own sexualized reading of the text. It's more self-consciousness, to be honest, about how others might read it and, and trying to figure out whether or not I needed to head off such thinking at the pass. Ultimately, though, as time passed, I realized that this, too, while a factor in my discomfort, was not really its source. And let me just say in passing that this kind of mental tumult is not typical when I'm preparing a sermon, um, which made me all the more attentive to it creating a kind of feedback loop where I was talking myself through from point to point and then kind of standing back and, and watching myself talk to myself. It was very weird. Um, all evidence, I think, that this text really did get under my skin. Well, having determined that neither um, feminist sensitivity nor my resistance to sexualizing the scene were at the base of my discomfort, I kept on listening. And what I wondered next was whether or not it was the intimacy of the scene that was uncomfortable. I mean, this is a very private scene in a house in Bethany, a home owned by some good friends of Jesus, people whom he loved and with whom we can assume he could relax and lay down the messianic burden for a little while. And at first glance, the characters seem kind of thin and predictable, Martha hustling around doing the cooking and serving, and Lazarus, Jesus, and Judas, the men, um, sitting and being served, Mary at the feet of Jesus, things we've all seen in other places, which don't surprise us anymore. But if we look a bit closer, if we imagine ourselves into that home, I think the characters do take on depth. We can imagine Martha wanting everything to be just so, happy for the chance to express her gratitude for the return of her brother from the dead, incapable of keeping her hands to herself, poking her sister and laughing and affectionately ruffling her brother's hair, resting her weight on the shoulder of Jesus. And we imagine Jesus, we imagine the utter deep weariness in him, the sheer relief that he feels of being off the road 
and off the radar, both of those wanting something out of him and those wanting him dead. We imagine Lazarus with this stunned look on his face, his eyes still wide um, and startled as if he's never quite gotten over the brightness of the sun that greeted him that day he came stumbling out of the tomb. And Judas, well, I, I can hardly resist seeing him as kind of blurry around the edges, actually, a little out of focus, but, but also very solid at the core in a way, a way that makes me nervous, the embodiment of all that's wrong with the world, the embodiment of all that's wrong with us. And suddenly we realize just how quiet, how sweet, how warm this scene is. Dear friends together around the table, telling old jokes, having to repeat them for Lazarus, who somehow left all the punchlines behind in the tomb, teasing and whispering and playing, just plain resting in, in the warmth of, and beauty and, and grace of friendship and love. And then Mary pulls us deeper into the scene. Our eyes are drawn to her as she comes in from another room and she kneels down and she empties a jar of perfume onto Jesus' feet as the rich fragrance fills the room and then as she dries his feet with her hair. And suddenly we realize we're caught up in something so much deeper, so much more intimate than we expected. And we wonder if we really ought to see such a scene, if it was intended for our eyes at all. And maybe that's what caused my disease. Maybe it was a sense of being an intruder, an outsider, a voyeur even, seeing behind the curtains into the heart of intimacy. The kind of feeling we get when we see two lovers embracing or overhear two good friends talking in ways clearly not intended to be overheard. It's not shame or embarrassment that we feel. If anything, it's the purity, the beauty, the humanity of the thing that catches us up. It's not that such scenes should be hidden away, more that we should quietly step outside and just leave them be. Maybe it's the feeling of intrusion, of, of seeing something I'm not meant to see that causes my discomfort with this gospel story. Now, I know that doesn't make much sense, since the story is incorporated into the gospel precisely so I can, so we can witness it unfold. Still, I can't help feeling like I need to, like I need to tiptoe around the scene. I need to hold my breath. I need to whisper if I talk at all. The scene is almost too much to behold. But in the end, I decided that this too was only part of my discomfort, that there remains something more basic, deeper perhaps, that I needed to uncover in order to be at peace with the story. Now, I realize that this sermon comes awfully close to being about me, and I really don't want that to be the case. Our Lenten journey is focused on the road Jesus walked, from Galilee to Jerusalem, from temptation to the in the wilderness to the agony of Gethsemane, from the beginning of his ministry to his betrayal and arrest, from incarnation to execution. It's Jesus to whom we look every step of the way. Yes, we've walked this road many times before, but we do it again willingly, humbly, faithfully, because we know that our salvation depends entirely upon whatever happens along the way. We also attend to the disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees as they encounter Jesus along the way. We watch them as they make assumptions and then have those assumptions dashed. We, we watch them as they make their own sort of one step forward, two steps back attempts to keep up with him. We watch them as they believe and as they doubt, as they obey and as they betray, as they act boldly, as they hide themselves away. We watch them as they cheer his coming and as they scream for his blood. We watch them too, all those ancient followers, and in their faithfulness and their missteps, we see our own. 
And if we're blessed, we can even find ourselves walking with them, partners in the journey, not just spectators. No, I don't think this is about me at all, at least not any more than it's about you too. Because here's the thing. As I muddled my way toward the time when I needed to really start putting something down on paper, it finally occurred to me that another aspect of my discomfort with this story from John's Gospel was the fact that I can see myself in it. When I look to Martha, I see myself at my most busy, frantically working to do the right thing the right way and make sure everybody's comfortable and well-fed and attending to needs before they're even identified and in every other way joyfully bustling my way toward and for Jesus. When I look to, to Lazarus, I see myself all bewildered at finding myself alive against my own will, brought back from the tomb I didn't even know I inhabited, still stunned by the quality of the light and the air and the sheer fact of Jesus sitting across the table from me. And when I look to Judas, I see myself clearly, torn between my own desire to shape history and my love for Jesus, someone so easily tempted by power and money, and yet wanting to do what is right, blurry around the edges, a work in progress. And when I look to Mary, when I look to Mary, I see myself as I wish to be, holy in love with and devoted to Jesus, with the prophet's eye that sees beyond the immediate, the prophet's hands that reveal the deeper truth about what is coming, who is coming, and what it all means. And when I look to Jesus, well, what do you see when you look at this scene? Do you see yourself in there too, reclining at the table, or serving the food, or looking for an angle, or down on your knees in sorrowful worship? We're all there. We're all there. As I said, I can see myself and everyone in that room. And the one I admire the most, and the one I fear the most, is my dear sister Mary, the prophet Mary. Because in the, in the midst of this intimate domestic scene, in the midst of this what should be sabbatical moment, in the midst of what ought to be and could be a time of quiet rest, Mary reveals the truth. All those threats, they will come true. Jesus will die. He was not kidding when he talked about it with his disciples. He was not speaking in riddles or metaphors or unknown tongues. And his enemies were not being euphemistic or engaging in empty threats. And Mary knows it. Mary knows it. Now, how she knows it is anyone's guess. Some commentators suggest that she was simply expressing her love for Jesus, and it was only after he interpreted it as an anointing for burial that Mary understood what it was she had done. But I prefer to see her as a true prophet, not so much for telling the future as telling the truth about the present. This idyllic scene Mary revealed was a prelude to the end of the journey, the last quiet moment before the storm. And seeing the truth, she expressed her love for Jesus extravagantly and without regard for the cost. And in doing so, she prophesied. She told the truth. She made known what everyone else in the room suspected, but did not, or could not, or would not say. I'm drawn to Mary's love for Jesus. I want to be just like her, on my knees and at his feet, offering myself fully and freely and with abandon to that love and expressing it as I will, 
no matter who might be scandalized by it or judge it or in some other way call it into question. When I enter this scene, I want to kneel beside my sister. But I'm also afraid of Mary the prophet because she makes what is to come crystal clear. Up until now, we may have been able to pretend that, well, it'll all turn out okay this time, that the Pharisees will see reason, or, or Pilate will do the right thing, or, or Peter will tell the truth, or that we'll finally, finally, finally stay awake in the garden and not run away. We will not run away. And then Mary opens the jar of perfume, and we catch the smell of nard, but also the tomb, and a shudder runs through me, and I, and I want to pull away. It's too much, too soon. I'm not ready. I mean, why can't she go ahead and sell the perfume and hand the money to Judas and let him give it to the poor? Maybe he really will this time. Maybe he will, despite John's condemnation. Maybe Judas will get it right this time, and the story will take a different turn, and we can all be spared the agony of betrayal and the cross. Our discomfort grows as Mary, her face set like a flint, turns her eyes to the feet of her beloved begins to prepare him for his burial. And there's nothing we can do to stop her. She's too much for us, too strong, too loving, too honest, too true to the one she called friend and teacher and Lord. Try as we may, wish as we might, we cannot dissuade her. The prophet Mary opens the jar and begins to prepare Jesus for burial and leaves us with a choice. We can either walk away or we can kneel beside her and give ourselves over to the Lord. The choice is ours, ready or not. And sisters and brothers, there it is, the real source of my discomfort. The story from John's gospel, gospel pushes us to the place where we must choose It's not the last time we'll be in this position. We're going to have other stops along the Lenten way. But here we must choose. There's a poignant scene. It happens in this otherwise quiet, intimate, warm, restful place. The home of Jesus, dear friends. In Bethany, on the way to Jerusalem. All the scary stuff was, we thought, left outside. The door was closed against it. It was just us, the nearest and dearest, at the table gathered, just abiding in each other's company. And then Mary prophesies, and we're confronted with a choice to once again commit ourselves to follow Jesus, no matter where he leads, or to excuse ourselves to leave the table, open the door, and look somewhere else for communion, Look somewhere else for redemption. Look somewhere else for peace. To kneel beside her sister Mary, knowing exactly what that means, to breathe in the smell of nard and the tomb and offer ourselves completely to Jesus or to, some off, to offer some other better plan, one that's disguised as compassion but is really self-serving and self-preserving. The scene insists that we choose and therein, for me at least, lies the discomfort. Therein lies my resistance. Therein lies our only hope. Which will we choose, dear sisters and brothers? Which will we choose?
Well, this is my prayer, that I'll move past whatever discomfort I feel, that I'll put aside my fear, that I'll stop playing around with all the good and sound reasons why I should refuse the choice or resist its call or otherwise postpone the whole thing, that I'll instead throw myself at Jesus' feet, that I'll kneel right there next to the prophet Mary and place myself in my discomfort and my fear and my weakness and my doubt Place all those things at Christ's mercy and trust that the path ahead, though it leads to death, will somehow be made right. I pray that I will trust that this Lenten journey is not in vain, that I will confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, that without him I'd still be in the grave, but that in him I will one day be dazzled by the light of the sun and the brightness of Christ's glory. This is my prayer for me for you, for all of us this Lenten season. May God give us the strength we need to face this choice and to put away our discomfort, to put away our fear, and choose well. May God make it so. Amen.